All right, so I'm going to be doing a lot of reading today, because ultimately I think God describes heaven better than I can. Um, so I'm I, splitting it up a little bit. So I'm going to read Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. A very negative ending to a very happy passage, but I'll, I'll get to that. Um, so first point, our future position. We are going to live as God's sons. Pain, sorrow, sin, suffering, death will be no more. Um, when I think of this verse that I read, verse 4, where it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, uh, I can't help but be struck by what an intimate um, action that is. Like, this isn't God snapping his fingers or saying a word and suddenly we're not sad. No, this is, God will actually reach out and wipe the tears from our eyes. I think as we pass into this new heaven, this takes place chronologically right after we will see the final judgment, all these calamities, and then God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And it, I, apparently, when we go into this new heaven and new earth, we'll be crying. There will be tears. But God is going to come in as our Father and hold us and wipe away the tears from our eyes and welcome us into this eternity, into this eternal state with him. And I, I always, when I hear that verse, I think of a particular time in my life um, I was a senior in high school, and there was a, a girl I'd been dating for two years. And, you know, as high schoolers sometimes think, you know, I had all these images of getting married and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, she broke up with me on—it was on the porch out, out in front of my parents' house. And so we talked for a while, and then I turned and walked back inside. My whole family was in the living room, and they knew what was going on. And I know when I walked inside, I was probably just sobbing my eyes out. And— uh, I remember, it, I will, I'll always remember this, I remember my dad got up and came over and just gave me the biggest hug and just held on for a long time. I don't remember if he said anything. I don't remember much else about that day, to be honest. But I remember feeling loved because when I was feeling like this deep sorrow, I mean, he just came and just held me. And that's what I think of when I think of this verse, is God will hold us and wipe away the tears from our eyes because he's our father and we're his children. And that is how we're going to get ushered into eternity, through this deep, intimate gesture from God. And then, continuing onward, we see that 
suffering, pain will be no more. I mean, everybody, no matter what you believe, no matter where you're from, every human being wants to be free of suffering and pain. And we know that those of us in Christ who are going to spend an eternity uh, with the Lord will be free from suffering and pain. And so when we see and experience pain in this world, it's temporary. And again, when you think of the length of eternity, forever, versus the length of our lives here, it is so temporary. It's so temporary. But then we see that God will not only welcome us into this new heaven and new earth, um, he will eternally, continually provide for us. Uh, We see that we will still hunger, thirst, and have physical needs. Um, He talks about giving freely to the thirsty from the waters of life in uh, verses 6 and 7. So we're going to have these glorified physical bodies, and but they will still be physical bodies. I mean, God didn't create us just to perpetually exist. Um, We will eat, drink, um, and still have physical needs, but in this life, those physical needs can seem like a negative. Uh, For example, if you're thirsty and you're in the middle of the desert and there's nothing to drink, well, you're in trouble, and that can be kind of stressful. But rather than be stressful, our physical needs are going to be what they were created to be, which is a source of comfort. Think about it. How does a child first establish a relationship with his mother? Because when he's hungry, his mother feeds him. His mother gives him something to drink. And through that, through that provision, he comes to love his mother and then comes to love his father as they provide for him and take care of him. In the same way, for all of eternity, God is going to provide for us and take care of us. When we're hungry, he'll give us food. When we're thirsty, he'll give us something to drink. And through that, this intimate relationship we have with him will continue to grow and continue to develop more and more and more as we get to know our loving God for all of eternity. It's an opportunity. The eating, drinking will be an opportunity to really feel the Father's love. And then we get to that, that last verse, verse 8, which seems kind of out of place. We're talking about heaven. Where, <laughs> why do you have to throw hell into it? Um, really, I think this, this is here just to emphasize the point that sorrow, death, and pain will be no more. All of these things, uh, cowardice, faithlessness, murder, sexual immorality will be gone, banished. It's going to be sealed away in the pit. And no matter what, for all of eternity, as we live in this world with God, those things can't touch us. I mean, I, I can't say how many times I wish that very, whatever, name a temptation. I wish it could just be gone. Well, it will be someday. And so now I'll move on to, uh, this is the kind of the long passage, and uh, you may need to follow along with your Bibles. This is going to be Revelation 21.9 through 22.5, and this is John basically doing the best he can to put into words what God is showing him. I mean, the, the Apostle John is seeing this vision of the new heaven and the new earth that is to come. And uh, it's greater and more glorious than anything he could— I mean, he doesn't have the words. But he's doing his best, and he describes it in ways—I don't know, we'll see. Um, he probably describes it better than I do, so I'll go ahead and just read it. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying— Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
and it had a great high wall with 12 gates, at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, which incidentally is about 1,380 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the, healings of the, na- the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So obviously there's a lot there. Um, I could, you could probably teach a whole seminary class on that. Um, but basically, I'm going to focus on, second point, our future place. That we are going to spend our eternity in a physical universe with an earth, a great capital city, and God's constant presence and provision. So the new heavens and the new earth are like the current heaven and earth, only perfected. We can see that just in, the, in God's choice of what to call them. Um, God isn't going to create this new, strange, alien world for us. He is going to recreate and perfect the current heavens, meaning the universe, and the earth. And then on these, this new heaven and new earth will be the new Jerusalem, which will essentially be the capital of the world. Um, and most of this description has to do with the city. We can see, well, first of all, we see that God is currently preparing this city for us. In verse 2, the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. Um, and Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 2, that he is, um, in his father's house are many mansions. If this were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. 
Um, and from there I will come again to receive you to myself so that where I am you may be also. He's talking about this city. Right now, Jesus is preparing this city for us in heaven. Think about that. Think about our earthly builders, our earthly architects, the cities we can build. Uh, Paris, New York, London, the, these places that people come from all over the world to see. And then think about a city designed and built by God. Just how amazing this city is going to be. Just the architectural wonders. You can get a hint of it from the passage, talking about uh, streets made of gold that's it's like so pure it's like transparent glass. I don't know what that means. Gold can't be clear. But John is seeing some kind of this, this perfected state of gold that he's having a hard time putting into words. Um, we see that the foundations are made of all these valuable valuable jewels. And they're, they're real things, too. Like, this isn't some new stone that God's creating. It's, it's amethyst. It's that purple thing that they sell to kids at tourist, like, touristy trap souvenir shops. Um, or, you know, maybe you have some nice amethyst jewelry. It's a, I really like amethyst. But, um, or jasper. Like, you can go, there's a woman who sells rocks in the mall, and she's got, like, little polished jasper. Like, you can go there and hold a piece of it, and that is the material that the New Jerusalem's walls are going to be made out of. It's a very real, visceral thing. It's not this white, floating cloud thing. Um, but then not only this, so the city is going to be perfect, designed by God. It won't have this, this crazy, craziness of like, you know, roads like Jackamon that make absolutely no sense. Um, there will be plenty of bike lanes for the pastoral staff to ride around to their heart's content. Um, <laughs> But not only will it be a perfectly designed city, but God's glory will dwell in the city. He will live there. And think about, so it says in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, God walked with man. God, he would come down in the cool of the day and walk with man. And that's when, you know, after they sinned, they hid from God when he came. Well, in the new heavens and the new earth, God will dwell with man. So there, there's a level of intimacy there, verse, walking versus dwelling, that we will have in the future that Adam and Eve did not even have um, in the garden. Like God is going to live with us in this city, and he will be our God. And his, his glory will be the light of this city. And so then let's go to the new earth. Um, we got this big, huge, glorious city with high walls, but the gates are always open, sitting on the new earth. And we can see that it's going to have topography like our current earth. Where does, where does, you know, John doesn't float up above the city and watch it come down. He stands on a tall mountain and watches it come down. There are going to be mountains. Um, we hear about rivers. Um, it, this earth is going to be like our own, only more perfected. I mean, you think about the natural wonders. I don't know how many of you have been to Yosemite National Park out in California, but there's a spot where you drive through a tunnel going into the Yosemite Valley, and man, I drove through there once uh, during a snowstorm in October, and coming out of the tunnel, you just see this whole magnificent valley lined with waterfalls, snow lining the tops of the valley, and it's just breathtaking. And you kind of, sometimes you have those moments where nature, you look behind, you can see behind the nature and see the God who created it. Um, but I think that we're going to have those moments constantly, because that this current earth is so beautiful, but it's stained by sin. We're going to live in an earth that is perfected. It's in the state that God intended it. Um, and he's going to recreate that earth for us, his sons and daughters, the church, his bride. And we see there's going to be nations, kings, a functional economy. That's an interesting one. So we're not all going to just live in the New Jerusalem forever. We're going to live all over the world. 
they're, they're going to be, you know, I don't know how they're, God's going to establish kings and nations, but uh, we see that the nations are going to bring their glories into the new Jerusalem. What are the glories of the nations? The products they create. Um, we, there's going to be this trade. There's going to be um, creativity, production. You know, we're not going to just sit there for all of eternity. We're going to be doing things. We're going to be making things. We're going to be traveling places. We're going to be seeing each other. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, if you're unhappy with your job, or you're thinking, you know, man, I hope I can get this certain type of job that's just going to be so exciting. Well, for all of eternity, you're going to work in some way producing. Um, and, you know, again, we don't know exactly what it'll look like, but it'll be something similar to today. Producing something, building, being creative, learning, um, exploring, uh, growing. It, it's it's going to be everything you could imagine out of a job today for all of eternity. So really, again, going back to the theme of be, if we focus on heaven— um, kind of the, the good, the great things that can distract us in this world sort of are shadows of that future. Really, whatever God's called you to here, you can do it. Because whatever you think you're missing out on, hey, you're going to have it. And you're going to have it for eternity. And there's going to be nothing detestable or evil. Man will be freed from natural limitations, such as night and the sea. This is an interesting one. In verse, uh, in 21.1 and then in... 22.5. First of all, the first thing John says about the new heaven and the new earth is that there will be no more sea. Why did he say that? Isn't the sea a good thing? Like, could you imagine this world without the sea? That kind of makes me sad. Because we think about the sea. We think beautiful vacation on the beach. Um, We're going to go fishing. We're going to go on a cruise. Uh, We love the ocean. We love the sea. But back in John's day, the sea was terrifying. Think about how many millions and millions of humans throughout history have lost their lives to the sea. The sea is an absolute natural barrier that mankind has been working to overcome for decades, and we still haven't fully. We still have ships that sink. Um, There's still giant storms that sweep in, hurricanes that hit towns along the coast. The sea is terrifying. So I don't think this passage is saying there won't be large bodies of water. Um, I mean, we, we read about a river. The river has to flow somewhere. There will, I think there will still be large bodies of water, but the sea as we understand it today, or especially as they understood it back then, as this limitation on mankind will be gone. It will no longer be that. And the same with night. I mean, we live in Laredo. For six months of the year, you can't do anything except at night. Like, <laughs> unless you want to bake or something. And so you might read this and think, man, is it just going to be bright all the time? That doesn't sound great. But I don't think that's what it's saying. To John's readers, the night was an absolute limitation on mankind, an absolute barrier. You know, you might think, oh, they, might, they had candles. You know, they didn't have headlights. They didn't have flashlights. They didn't have street lights. Um, candles were extremely expensive, extremely difficult to produce. Uh, you wouldn't waste it on something as simple as walking outside. So when it was dark, it was dark. You couldn't do anything. If you got stuck outside the city gates at night, you're in trouble. There's animals out there. There's thieves out there. You can't see anything. So I think what it's saying is not that there won't be differences in light or, you know, beautiful sunsets or anything like that, but the aspect of night that limits mankind, the aspect of night that would have terrified the original readers of Revelation will be gone. 
I think we can extrapolate, extrapolate that further and think about limitations on mankind today. Um, and again, this is sort of, I think, when we think about heaven, God intends us to use our imaginations. I mean, he created us with this imagination, and he's destined us for this world that is so much greater than our own in ways that we haven't seen. Um, I think no matter what you imagine, heaven is going to be greater, because God has a bigger imagination than we do. And uh, so just imagine limitations on yourself, limitations on humanity, and ways that maybe in, in the new heaven and the new earth, those might be removed. We see that there will be rivers greater and more glorious than we can imagine now, like shining. Uh, and there will be trees bearing fruit uh, with leaves that give healing to the nations. And, you know, I don't know exactly what that means, but somehow these trees are going to be restorative. They're going to be, um, uh, they're, they're, they're part of God's provision, like I was talking about earlier, and how he's going to continually provide for us, continually heal us, continually feed us for all of eternity and take care of us. And so kind of a qu- few quick summary points on uh, kind of this future home is we can see that it will clearly be physical. We're not talking about some amorphous white uh, strange alien world that we couldn't imagine ourselves living in. This won't be sterile. It'll be perfect, but it will be this earth, perf- like this earth perfected. Um, it'll be physical. There will clearly be time and space. There are even some theologians that get this idea that the eternal state is going to be some, somehow like time and space will have no meaning and will just exist with God forever. I mean, that sounds more like Buddhism or Hinduism and their ideas of nirvana than Christianity. Christianity. Uh, That is not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible is talking about earth. God created us just like he created Adam and Eve to live in a physical state. We are going to have glorified physical bodies. There will be time and space. We see in this passage a reference to time. The fruit trees will give fruit in in their season each month. So there will be time. There will be months. We see the angel carefully measuring out the dimensions of the New Jerusalem. There will be space. And then kind of a final point that I think this is maybe me using my imagination a bit, like I was saying, is there will be human technological progress. Um, So we see this idea of nations and an economy transporting goods into the New Jerusalem. Uh, This idea of a city with gates. You know, that's not how God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So we can see that we will not simply revert back to a, this, a Garden of Eden state. We're not going to be walking around, uh, sleeping under trees, eating fruit all day, um, basically living like animals. We're going to live in cities. We're going to live in nations. There will be cultures. Um, there will be these things that, I mean, God created us to be creative, and we have created and developed societies. God's not going to just tear all that away. He's not going to take all of these technological advances, all of these uh, things that we've built and just say, no, that's not good, let's start over. He's going to perfect it. In the same way that he's not going to just destroy the heavens and the earth, he's going to recreate him new. Uh, so I think, I think technology, we can see from this that technology isn't necessarily going to go away. I mean, I can imagine, I don't think it's a stretch to picture yourself jumping in your car in the New Jerusalem and driving out to one of these nations. Um, it's really going to look like, like this earth, just perfected and greater in ways that are hard to imagine, but in ways that we have some concrete images of. Human progress will be perfected and built upon. 
And so this brings me to my third point, which is our current perspective. So this is sort of the so what of the passage. Um, you know, this is great. We're, uh, we're going to live in this great place. It's going to be cool. Uh, we'll be with God, intimacy, happiness for all of eternity. How does it affect me now? Well, there are numerous places in Scripture that, where we are commanded to focus on heaven. In Colossians 3.2, Paul says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In Philippians 3.20, uh, which is a passage, I, man, you could easily preach a whole sermon on this, uh, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're already, as, as children of God, we are already citizens of the New Jerusalem. Like, that is our home, not here. But again, that's a whole other message. Um, Matthew six nineteen through 20 says, not, Do not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. So why is it so important for us to be focusing on heaven, to be storing up treasures in heaven when, I mean, we live on this earth? Well, there's sort of two things, two ways that heaven shifts our perspective. Um, sort of the first sub-point here is that heaven comforts us. And I think I've, I've already talked about this. Um, and I think this is fairly well understood by most people, or a lot of Christians, is that we know that we're going to be with God someday. And that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there will be no more sorrow, no more pain. So when we go through sorrow and pain in this world, we know that it's temporary. No matter what it is. If it's terrorism and starvation overseas, corporate pain that humanity goes through as a result of sin. Or if it's our personal pain from, from really deep emotional pain to something as simple as I'm just having a bad day today. All of that stuff is temporary, and we know that it'll go away. And so if we keep our eyes on heaven, on this perfected state in which we're going to live, we can look, look past the pain of today. I mean, we can know that it's temporary and be comforted in that. Know that it's going to end. It will not go on forever. And put it in its proper context. And then the second sub-point is that heaven challenges us. Uh, so we know that one day we are going to live on this new earth. We are going to live um, with God on this glorious earth, in this glorious city, where all of our innermost desires for adventure, intimacy, comfort, are going to be satisfied. They're going to be fulfilled. Because of this, we don't have to seek after those things in this life. We don't have to be comfortable here. We don't have to... Um, find perfect intimacy here. We don't have to find wealth here because we know that for all of eternity, and again, eternity is so much bigger than here, for all of eternity, we're going to have those things in an abundance more than we can even possibly imagine. And so that frees us to follow Christ without holding on to the things of this world when we keep our gaze focused on heaven. We can see an example in Scripture uh, in Hebrews 11, which is the Faith Hall of Fame. Uh, it's called, it kind of, the author of Hebrews goes through this list of all of these Old Testament heroes from, you know, Abel, Moses, Abraham, uh, and on and on, Sarah, Rahab, Daniel, and talks about their great faith in God and the great things they did for God. Well, three times in this passage, three times the author of Hebrews describes the driving motivation of these great heroes of the faith to be their, their 
looking forward to the new Jerusalem, setting their gaze on God's holy city. Because, for example, Abraham knew he could give up the wealth and status he had in his homeland and travel to this country where he knew nobody, where he had to live in tents, because just because God called him there, and he knew he could do that because he knew that someday he would, he would have so much more than he ever could have had if he held on to those things in his previous city with God in the city, uh, in Hebrews 11 it says, in the city whose foundations are designed and built by God. They set their eyes on heaven. And you think about someone like yeah, Mother Teresa today. How can somebody go and just give their whole life to to serving other people and never not think about their own comfort because they know that they're going to be comfortable for all of eternity. So why waste your time worrying about that here? Serve God. So if we set our minds upon our glorious future, uh, the temptations and the, de- the desires of this world just become meaningless to us. They really do. They just fade into nothingness. Um, the only thing left that makes any sense at all, that has any impact on eternity, is to serve God wholeheartedly. Um, and so my question is, what stops you from doing that? Like, what, what's something, if you think, something in your heart that you're holding on to in this world that you know that God is calling you to give up? And when you think about heaven, and you think about um, our glorious future, and this eternal, perfected intimacy that we're going to have with God and with each other, what's stopping you from giving that up? I'm telling you, you can give that up and you don't have to worry about it. You're not going to lose anything. You're going to gain. And ultimately, what you have is going to be so much greater than what you're trying to hold on to. And so I want you to imagine a church. Imagine a church, even, even our church, that really put this principle to heart and lived their lives focused on heaven and uh, focused on these future glories. And imagine that the young people in that church, instead of living their lives trying to look cool, um, trying to gain acceptance from their peers, trying to get as many likes as they could possibly get on Instagram, lived their lives throwing aside their, their hope of acceptance to accept others who've been rejected and bring them into the church and bring them into this relationship with God because they know that ultimately they will have perfect acceptance. They will have perfect intimacy, perfect relationships. They don't need to look for that here. And imagine working people and their jobs in that church, um, how when, when coworkers treat them poorly, when bosses yell at them, they know that this job isn't everything. This, this, this isn't the end of the world. This isn't the, the main thing. So they forgive they, they treat others graciously, knowing that they're citizens of the New Jerusalem. And they work not for earthly rewards, not for the, the praise of their coworkers, but for God, for heavenly rewards. Imagine the marriages in that church. Imagine two people, instead of selfishly trying to take everything they can out of the relationship and take from each other, they selflessly give and selflessly seek to glorify one another in the same way that God is going to glorify his bride, the church, by giving it, giving us this beautiful new city that he's designing and this beautiful earth that he's designing. And then think about retirement, how that church would view retirement. Um, Our world tells us work 
work hard and save so that for the last 15 to 20 years, you can live comfortably. We're going to live comfortably for all of eternity. So rather than leaving the workforce and sitting and doing nothing, why not use the wisdom that you've gained over the years and the time that you have to serve others and give back and serve Christ while you're still here on this earth, knowing full well that you're not giving anything up, that for all of eternity you're going to have that comfort um, that you've been seeking. So that church, even our church, would represent Christ, the King of the future New Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth, of which we're now citizens well. And everyone in that church and everyone in our church would know and live in light of the fact that one day they're going to live with God and anything that they could possibly seek to get out of this life they're going to have. And so the only thing left is to serve God with their whole hearts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing everyone here to church today. Uh, Thank you for this message. Thank you for the glimpse that you give us into this glorious future we have. I pray that as we go throughout this week and go throughout uh, the rest of our lives that we would remember to look to you and look to our glorious future and live in light of our citizenship in the new Jerusalem. Um, Not looking for treasures here on earth, but storing up treasures in heaven and serving you in everything.